Today's scripture reading is Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 22. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding in his face, hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs important in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Amen. So I want to start off this morning uh, by showing uh, a picture there we go. So we have a picture here of a beach house. Now, as you see this picture, is this a house you think you would want to do a beach vacation in? Probably not, right? Doesn't look that stable. It looks like it's held up by, uh, you know, maybe less than 20 wooden beams. Now, we, we think about this, this beach house. I think the fact that this house exists is proof that mankind is rebellious. When you, when you think about it, those of us that know the Bible, there's a whole illustration that Jesus gives that talks about not building a house on the sand. But what do we see year after year? At some point this year, and probably already happened, storms will come, rains will come, and you see beach houses washing off into the sea. And you see these people crying, they're in dismay, shocked, that their houses are now in the ocean. As if building a house on the sand was, was going to be something that you should do. So I want us to read and listen to this illustration that Jesus gives this morning from Matthew 7. Jesus says to us, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it." I want to say to us this morning that our passage this morning deals with foundations. Having a firm foundation 
And so my question to you this morning is, what is your life built on? Have you built it on the rock or is your house built, is your life rather built on sand? What are the pillars that hold your, your life together? As we think about that house that we, we saw, it's held up by these wooden pillars, these wooden beams. When you think of God, when you think of Jesus, when you think of the importance of, of, of God in your life, is he your foundation or is he just one beam amongst the many? Just as this house would crumble if one of these beams were, were broken, such are the lives of most of the people in this world. We seek to build our lives on everything except for Christ. Again, where we're going in our passage this morning is looking at a foundation. A lady by the name of Dottie Rambo, she wrote a song that says, Where do I go when the storms of life are threatening? Who do I turn to when the winds of sorrows blow? And is there a refuge in the time of tribulation? And if you know the song, the answer is yes. I go to the rock. I know that he's able. I go to the rock. And that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to the rock. My aim this morning is to take you to Jesus, to see him and to see him as all that you need in this life. Last week, we were encouraged to keep calm and trust God. This week, the word of the Lord from Isaiah is to go to the rock. We, we jump into Isaiah 8, basically in the middle here, just after Isaiah has received the word from the Lord of, of Judah's judgment. The word of the Lord to Isaiah was that Israel and Judah both would soon face the, de the destruction uh, by the Assyrian invasion, the Assyrian army. Because King Ahaz had disregarded the word and promise of the Lord to protect and save Judah, now uh, Judah would be destroyed. And what we learn from the earlier portion of Isaiah 8 is this, is that rebellion and sin must be punished. We find in Proverbs eleven twenty one. 21, where it reads, be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. In Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. King Ahaz and Judah had been arrogant in heart. They rejected the Lord's word and they rejected the Lord's way. They sowed seeds of self-reliance and self-dependence. And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. And what we find in the earlier part of Isaiah 8 is that the Lord was giving them the fruit of their labor. We look at Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who reaps... For the one who sows to his own flesh, from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap, reap eternal life. Paul also says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
The fact that God does not immediately address our sin when we sin and inflict his wrath upon us is an occasion for us to repent, not to look at it as I'm getting by and to keep on sinning. When we see, when we see God enacting his judgment throughout the scripture, it should serve to us as a warning for us not to take God lightly. He is holy and we should regard him as holy. We see that in Exodus 30, 34 and 7. For it tells us, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? This is our God this morning. And this is why we should not delay in turning away from our sin and repenting and turning uh, to Christ, the rock of our salvation. The word of of the Lord to, to Isaiah was a word of judgment, and it served as a warning to him. Isaiah, don't go the way of these people. You see how they have rejected me. Don't follow them. His word was an encouragement to Isaiah that my word is true. I've walked with you this far. Don't turn. Stay with me. We see in verse 12, he, he instructs Paul, he, he instructs uh, Isaiah here to not follow conspiracies. But what exactly is a conspiracy? Conspiracies are secret in nature. Conspiracies have to deal with secret plans and secret groups of people and secret activities and and secret meetings, and hideouts, and all these sorts of things. Conspiracies, they, they, they offer you an opportunity to be in the know. You've now found out some information that they didn't want you to know. And here it is. We're, we're giving it to you. Here's the truth. And this is what conspiracies do to us. Now, we know conspiracies. We, we live in a world of conspiracies. There's theories about who controls the media, theories about who controls the financial world, conspiracies about wars, the possibilities of world powers aligning and what that might mean for each country, conspiracies about what will happen in the U.S. economy based upon who will win the presidential election. I had a conversation with a, with a gentleman this week, and he was telling me that he was waiting to sell his house to see who was going to win the presidential election. And he just went on and on and on about these political parties and, and all these different things. In the back of my mind, I'm like, man, this guy is in the deep end. You're basing your, your decision on whether to sell your house on who on votes? Who votes someone in? Like, man, that's foolish. And we all know people like that. We know people that have made major decisions in their lives based on conspiracies. Conspiracies, they demand a reaction in our lives. And usually what conspiracies are working to do is to create fear in your heart, to move you to make fearful decisions. And fearful decisions become fearful habits. And before long, conspiracies don't stop until now you're living a fearful life. You're living life totally outside of reality. But in your mind, you're deceived. You think that I know the real way. Everybody else is deceived. I'm doing what's right. 
And so a question again for us this morning is, what is your life built on? Is your life built on the words of others, the fear of others, and not the word of God this morning? Whether, whether these conspiracies become true or not, it has no bearing on God and his sovereign rule. Whether real or fake, our response to conspiracies should be the same. Our God in heaven reigns, and he has the final say. I'm not going to take your conspiracies, your rumors, whether they become true or not, and they're not going to dictate to me how I live my life. Psalms uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and verse 4 say, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. In verse 4 it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. I can't help but think about the Lord laughing in, in the same way that, that Michael Jordan was laughing in, in the last dance. He's looking at the iPad when, when Gary Payton is saying, man, I had Michael Jordan in those finals. If, if we could have just kept playing a few more games, we would have took him. Michael Jordan's looking at this iPad just busting out laughing because he realized I own the Sonics. And in that same way, the Lord looks down at the rulers of this world and their plans, and he laughs because he's like, man, I own y'all. I created you. You think you can upseat me, the king, the ruler of everything? This is what the conspiracies seek to do. They seek to remove God and seek to give us the inside track to how to control our lives. Conspiracies, they, they offer, again, a glimpse into what's real. But the problem with conspiracies is that there's nothing more real than realizing that the, our God reigns. And Isaiah was being called to honor the fact that his Lord was holy and his Lord reigned in the world. And as we look at verses 13 and 14, we find, we find a command and we find promises attached to that command. The Lord commanded Isaiah to honor the Lord as holy, to hold the Lord's word in high regard, regard not the word of society, conspiracies, and, and these things that create fear in our hearts. Matthew 10 and verse 28 tells us not to fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Isaiah and Judah's sin was that they did not regard the Lord as holy. When faced with what they saw was an insurmountable opponent, they sought to seek alliance with them to save themselves. That's what the book of Isaiah is about. It's about salvation. And so each week as we stand before you to preach, the choice is this. Are you going to save yourself or seek to save yourself? Or are you going to seek the only way of salvation that is found in Christ? The book of Isaiah proclaims to us that Yahweh saves. He's the only one that can save. He's the only one that will save. And so this word to, to Isaiah was the word that judgment was coming on Judah. But wasn't just doom and gloom. In this, the Lord was promising that he would save a remnant. Though the destruction of Judah would be great, it would not be total. For in verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 8, the Lord issues a promise to the Assyrian alliance. 
Isaiah 8, 9 and 10 says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you countries. Stop, strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. What's amazing there, that ending, for God is with us, in Hebrew is Emmanuel. And so if you're reading this in Hebrew, it basically says, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, Emmanuel. It's amazing when we think about the fact that the, the name of the Lord, Emmanuel, guarantees victory. It reminds me of, of, of Proverbs uh, chapter 18 and verse 10, which says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The name of the Lord is not a beach house. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. As we think about verses 13 through 16 in this passage, the the significance of the word of the Lord to Isaiah is, is basically the significance of salvation. The Lord is putting before him eternal life, heaven or hell, blessing and curses. The Lord says, if you would fear me, if you would regard me as holy, you actually wouldn't have anything to fear. Because I will be a sanctuary to you. But if you do not fear me, if you reject me, I will be an enemy to you. Think about notice notice the links that the Lord goes to explain the fate of those who don't heed his word. The Lord promises a stone of offense, a rock, not a rock of salvation, but a rock of stumbling, a trap and a snare. Many shall stumble and fall and be broken, snared, and taken. He's he's stacking the deck to show if you reject me, it will go terrible for you. you. If you somehow miss the stone of offense, the rock of stumbling is gonna get you. If you miss if you miss tripping over the, the rock of stumbling, there's a trap, there's a snare, you like you have no hope if you reject me. And so the choice should be easy, right? A sanctuary or destruction. We would choose the sanctuary all day. Notice that what I find interesting here is that the Lord promises his presence to both the obedient and the disobedient. To the obedient, the Lord promises to be a sanctuary with you, to be your God and to be with you as Emmanuel. But he also promises his presence To the disobedient, to the disobedient, he says, I will be with you in a different way. I will be with you as a constant enemy. The Lord promises to be an offense, a stumbling stone, a trap, and a snare. Is that how you want the Lord to be with you? As a constant enemy? The fact of the matter is we we will always be with the presence of the Lord. The question for you is, how do you want the Lord to be with you? Do you want want him to be with you as a blessing, as a sanctuary, one leading you through life? Or do you want him to always be in front of you as a stumbling block? 
as an unrelenting curse in your life. The promised Emmanuel to Isaiah and the people of God points us forward to Christ. Jesus is, is the sanctuary for the believer and, and the stone of offense for the non-believer. I love how the Bible is able to explain itself from book to book. If we look at Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and 12, we see it stated clearly. Je- this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It can't get any clearer than that. We are just like Israel and Judah. We are like King Ahaz. We reject God's word and we reject his ways. This Jesus is the one that we have rejected. Salvation for Israel and Judah in Isaiah 8 is the same for salvation to us. It's found in Jesus. Salvation is trusting in the word of God, trusting that he alone will save. And this is what Isaiah is charged to encourage the people with. So again, we ask the question, is your life built on Christ or is it built on conspiracy? What you need to know is that there's a storm coming that's greater than any physical storm we've seen in this life. God is coming and he will judge and punish sin of which we are all guilty. You need a salvation, whether you want to realize it or not, whether you want to drown it out or you don't want to pay any attention to it. The fact of the matter is you need salvation from the wrath of God. And he's offering you to take refuge in him. Stop rejecting your only means of salvation. Turn to Christ. Repent. You've heard it said before, tomorrow is not promised. But according to this passage, the promise is that Emmanuel, Jesus, he promises to be with you if you would turn to him and regard him as holy. He will be with you now and forever. This promise of of Emmanuel, this promise of God being with us, it's the message of the Bible. It's the whole aim of the Bible. What you find from Genesis to Revelation is the one mission of God to save his people and to be with them. We see that in Exodus chapter 29 and verse 45 where it says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. There's a ton of verses that, that declare this truth. But we can turn to Revelation 2, when it, Revelation 21, and when it's all said and done, at the end, Revelation 21, 3, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. It is this promise. It is this promise of the Lord's presence and victory It's this word of the Lord that we find Isaiah clinging to. This is what Isaiah's hope was found in, in the fact that God promises to never leave me. And so as we look at verses 16 through 22, we find Isaiah responding to the word of the Lord. Isaiah, in these verses, I believe, gives us an example of fearing God and trusting God in hard places and in difficult times. 
notice here that, that they're disciples that Isaiah is in leadership of. They're disciples that, that Isaiah has charge over. And now being encouraged by the Lord to fear him alone, he now seeks to encourage his family and his, and his disciples to do the same. Again, this is helpful for us to, to remember that God always has a remnant of his people. You look at Isaiah 8. You start Isaiah 8 with the judgment of sinful Israel and Judah, and then you finish chapter 8 with the same thing. Those who disobey the Lord being found in, in utter darkness. But if you look in closely, you find that there's a people within the people. In the midst of these people that are going to face God's destruction and judgment, there's another group of people. There's a smaller group of people. There's a faithful group of disciples that are yet trusting in the Lord. Yes, Judah and Israel would be destroyed, but not in its totality. There's a seed, there's a remnant, there's a faithful few that the Lord is seeking to preserve. And so what we can learn from from these verses 16 through 22 is that the uncomfortable truth is that God ordains his people to suffer. Isaiah was not exempt from the suffering that would come to Judah. The promise was not that he was just going to extract him and his disciples out and, and, and destruction would be there. He, he had to go through and face the same destruction that they were facing. The promise was not a life of ease. The promise was that he would be with them through these trials and these sufferings. This is, this is instructive to us because oftentimes we, be, we believe and I think we anticipate God to just remove suffering out of our lives. Just take it away. Just remove the pain and everything will be all right. I think when we look over scripture, we find oftentimes God's promise is to be with us through these challenges in life, not to just remove them. In 1 Peter 4, verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And Paul himself writes in 2 Corinthians 12 and 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to remove this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. The promise is that God will be with us and that his grace is sufficient to give us what we need when we need it. Isaiah and his his family, his disciples, they would suffer the consequences of, of an evil king just like we suffer the consequences of what our leaders do in this country. We live in a world that is fallen and sinful, and but just because we are God's own and we're God's people and we're seeking to walk after him, it doesn't mean we're exempt from the suffering that we find in life. And so the question becomes, why? Why do we suffer? Why is this the path that God would choose for us? He could have chose a different path. He could have ordained it to where we wouldn't have to suffer. Why? Why is suffering the path for his people? By God's grace, in 1 Peter, we have a book that is written to a people that are suffering. And in 1 Peter 2, 
21, we find these words, for to, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Again, this is the uncomfortable truth that God ordains suffering in our lives. And the, the fact that we see disciples in this chapter in, in uh, Isaiah 8 should remind us that disciples are those who follow. Disciples are those who, who, who learn from and follow after Christ. And what 1 Peter 2 and 21 says is that if you are going to follow Christ, he set the example, he set the pathway. And if you're going to follow him, you will walk down a road of suffering. This is what it means to follow Christ, to follow in his footsteps. The call to discipleship is a call to follow Emmanuel, God with us, and to follow him to the kingdom. Salvation, life with Emmanuel, it's a journey. Jesus meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. When God says he is with us, he doesn't just come to where we are and say, we're just going to set up camp here. He says, no, I've come here to, to take you where you should be. And as we follow him, it will lead down a road of suffering. And so for those of us trusting in Emmanuel this morning, trusting in the Lord, following Jesus, Isaiah models for us a commitment to be with the Lord. The hope of, of Emmanuel, it promises victory. But this is also a two-way commitment. We know God is almighty. We know he's powerful. We know his hand holds us. He, he keeps us. He's, he's strong. This is what the Lord does. But it is also true that we must hold on to him. We just sang the words of God's highway. You're holding on to me. I'm holding on to you, Lord. That's the, that's the, that's the resolution. That's the resolve we must have in his life. And that's what we see in Isaiah. Come what may. I'm holding on to the Lord. And Isaiah then seeks to encourage those around him to hold on to God all the same. In times of difficulty, it, it, it may seem like God isn't there, and it, it can become easy and convenient to turn away from God's word and God's ways. And this is what we see in the aim of Satan to, to get us to turn away from God, to turn away from his word, to turn away from him, period. We see in, in, in Isaiah 8, 19, uh, Isaiah is charging them to not turn away from the Lord by going to mediums and necromancers. And he explains what these people do in verse, in verse 19. These are people who inquire of the dead. They conjure up the dead in hopes of giving you answers and resolving the problems in your life. Isaiah says, how is it possible that anything dead could have anything to say positive to the living? The God of the living, the God of the living, not the God of, of the dead, as Jesus reminds us in Matthew 22 and, and 32. He is the God of the living. And so let us remain with him. You've once trusted in his word. You've once feared him. You've once loved him before. Don't allow tribulations and trials and suffering in your life to move you away from him. Now, for us, most of us today, we're not tempted to go find a medium or a necromancer to, to give us answers. That's, that's probably not going to be your struggle this morning. But I dare say to you, we are 
tempted by the voices of media. We are tempted by the, by the news that we see, the, the podcasts that we listen to, the, the many voices that lead us and pull us away from the Lord. We're, we're tempted by entertainment to numb our pain, to, to escape suffering and trial in any way that we can. These are the voices that are constantly pulling us. We consult these dead things in our lives, seeking to find hope. And what's amazing, and this is the deception of sin. The deception of sin is to say, you've got Jesus. You can also go and consult a medium. You can do both. You can have Jesus and a medium. You can have Jesus and a necromancer. You can have Jesus and and your your podcast. You can do Jesus and all these different things. You can have Jesus and pray to your ancestors. You can have Jesus and use crystals and sage and all these different things. Why do you have to only have one? You can have both, right? That's the deception of sin, to lead us away from the Lord. And so the question comes for us, what tempts you to walk away from the Lord, even if for 30 minutes? What are those temptations that that tempt you to leave his presence, to leave his word, to not study, to not pray, to not attend weekly worship? What are those things that eat, eat away slowly but surely at your resolve to follow him? In, in that deception of, I can do this this week, it's fine. I can come back next week. And slowly but surely, you'll look up and you'll look around and you'll look all over the earth like you find in verse 22. And you'll see nothing but thick darkness. Because sin has moved you further and further and further away from him. This is the foolishness of leaving the Lord, leaving his word, leaving his promises the, the, the deception that I can do both. I can, do, I can have Jesus and this thing. I can do all of these things and still be with Jesus. And Isaiah is charging his people in Isaiah 8 and charging us this morning. Have a soul devotion to the Lord. Do not leave him. He's all you need. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Just think about that. He says he's God with us. So if he's with us, we have all things we need, right? Here's how, here's how Satan tempts us to leave God also by seeking to convince us that God has left us. Again, this is why it's important to have a, a healthy theology of suffering because when you believe that suffering is not for the Christian, when you believe that you're entitled to a life of peace and ease, you can be easily tempted to think God has left you. He promised to be with you. He's not with you. Look what you're going through. Where is he? Can you see him? Can you feel him? Is he in this problem? Is he in this trial with you? Is he with you in this circumstance? It seems like he's left. But notice the words that that, that Isaiah, notice the words of, of Isaiah here in Isaiah 17. He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Notice he's not disillusioned in who he's trusting in. He's just gotten a report that that Judah and Israel are going to soon face destruction. He knows what's coming, and he's vowing to say, I'm trusting in the Lord, come what may. Even though he hides his face from me, I will yet still trust him. Oftentimes, we, we end 
our services and the benediction of, the, of what some call the, the ironic blessing. Numbers 6, 24 through 26. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What a blessing that, that passage is. But what happens when you don't feel his face shining upon you? What happens when, when the Lord is hiding his face from you and, you and you feel the coldness? You don't feel the warmth of him shining on you. This is what Isaiah was facing. He and his disciples, they knew the judgment of the Lord was coming on Isaiah and Judah. And yet their resolve was to trust in him. This is the life of disciples, at, at times it may feel as though God has left you all alone. Remember, First Peter says that we are called to, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Remember this. Jesus knows what it's like to have the Father turn his face on him. Remember what Jesus says on the cross? God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what that's like. But what was the answer to that question? The Father turns his face on Christ that he might bring you and me to glory, that Christ might accomplish our salvation, that we can walk with him. There's a song we, we're going to sing in a few here called Cornerstone, which it contains these words, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale. My ankle holds within the veil. This is Isaiah. This is, this is the path of God's people, and I pray that this is us this morning. Followers of Christ, even when it seems like he is hiding his face from us, that we would hold sure to his promises. How do you hold on to something when you, when you can't see? You can't feel your way through. That's the importance of holding on to God's word. We implant it deep within, for in these times, that's what we can pull on. I can't see the Lord. I can't feel him. It, look, it looks like he is a million miles away, but I know his word, and I know that he's kept it, and I know he will keep it, and yet I will trust in him. As we close, read, read with me the words of 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 6 through 9. These are verses that we read here at East Point Church before. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. One day, y'all, we will see him. It may feel like he, it may feel like he doesn't exist, but hold to his word. One day we're going to see him, and that's going to be a glorious day. Let's pray.